Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Online fraud. In the UK, it's an epidemic. Latest data show that 40 million adults have been targeted by a scammer so far this year. That is around three quarters of the UK population. And those scammers are defrauding consumers to the tune of £100 million a month, with impersonation fraud hitting record levels. Chances are, you'll have been on the receiving end yourself. 31-year-old Jenny got one of those scam texts. Regular Money Clinic listeners will have heard her on the podcast last week. Now, that message was ostensibly about a parcel delivery, but it led to Jenny having her life savings stolen by a caller who claimed to be from her bank's fraud department. I said, you know, how do I know that you're HSBC? I'm not sure how I feel about this. And they were like, OK, you know, well done for being cautious. It's good to check these things. Jenny fell for the scam caller's professional-sounding voice. Afterwards, she faced not only the trauma of losing over £17,000, but also the fight to get her money back. My correspondence with the bank through letters and through the complaints team, I mean, they've just made me feel like I was a lot more responsible for this than I actually was. Well... Jenny took her case to the Financial Ombudsman, the free, independent service that's in charge of resolving customer complaints about financial firms. Coming up, I catch up with her to find out what happened next. Victim blaming needs to stop. The whole vocabulary in the bank's like correspondence with me has been like that, you know, I could have done more. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. Record levels of bank fraud are keeping the ombudsman very busy indeed. We're at a place now where we all have to be more vigilant and and more aware. It's not something that happens to, to other people anymore. We're going to unpick some of the headline figures on the massive increase in fraud and give you some tips on how to stay alert and outwit the scammers. This is an epidemic of fraud and it's only going to be resolved by everybody pulling their weight. But first, let's get the latest from Jenny. Well, Jenny, welcome back to Money Clinic. I said in the last episode... When we had developments, we'd get you back on. So I'm really, really glad that we're speaking again. So 
The last time we spoke, let me summarise, you'd basically lost around £17,000 in total to the fraudsters. Now, the bank, HSBC, they had agreed to refund part of that money, but they were still holding out on around £7,000 that they felt they shouldn't have to refund to you. You disagreed. So how did things go from there? Well, I spoke to someone from the complaints team at HSBC. They had said that, you know, we feel that you were partly to blame for this. um, Therefore, we are not going to give you back the rest of the money. I got that in writing as well through an email. And being told that you're partly responsible for probably one of the worst things ever to happen to you in your life. How did you feel about that? Well, those words really stuck with me. This like big multinational bank is telling me that, well, actually, it, it is my responsibility that this happened. You just question like your own reality in a way. And that's that is what is quite traumatic about it. So Jenny's at the stage where she's exhausted her bank's internal complaints procedure, but she's not satisfied with the outcome. However, she can still take her case a stage further. Had you ever heard of the financial ombudsman before this happened? Actually, um, yes, but only really when this happened did I hear about really how they were the people to go to and that they really had that power that the bank didn't. But that's pretty much it. I didn't, I didn't really like know really much about them. At this point, Jenny emailed me to ask for tips on how to go about explaining her case to the ombudsman. What did she find helpful that she wants to pass on to other listeners? I would say to anyone who's going to write to the ombudsman, like, make sure you do that. Make sure you keep a record of everything that's happened, the dates, the numbers, um, which is quite hard, actually, when you go over it, like in your head, because it's, you know, it can actually be a bit confusing and a bit stressful to kind of like state you know, the exact dates and the exact numbers. It was quite a long letter that I wrote because I was trying to be like as detailed as possible and trying to be as exact as possible so that, you know, if they went to the bank and said, you know, she's saying this, that and the other, you know, the bank might say, oh, no, that's wrong. She's lying or, you know, something like that. The part of the letter that I was able to give Jenny some help with was explaining the no-fault code, which the vast majority of UK banks have voluntarily signed up to. The no-fault code says that if a customer is deemed to have lost their money through no fault of their own, i.e. if they believed like Jenny that they were genuinely talking to their bank, then they should get their money back. This is how it was worded in Jenny's letter to the Ombudsman. Now there's a key phrase in your letter. After you've set out all of the details, I therefore believe that under the terms of the no-fault code, I took reasonable steps to challenge the fraudsters who took part in this deception. However, HSBC has ruled that I was partly responsible mm-hmm. for the theft, yeah, a decision that I'm totally appalled by. Jenny submitted her complaint online and got a confirmation email from the Ombudsman. That was in July 2021. Then she waited and waited until I got a, a call from them from someone from the ombudsman in January. So that's January 2022, 6 months later. 
And then a confirmation email following that up saying the bank has agreed to give you back the full amount that is owed. And that was it. There was nothing else I had to do. I didn't have to like go through any kind of other questions or anything like that. It was just literally like, yeah, you're getting your money back. So the first contact that you had from the Ombudsman officially, other than just giving you a case reference number, was to say, good news, you're getting your money back. Yeah. As soon as I, you know, got that call, you know, as soon as they were like, yeah, this is the this financial ombudsman, you know, and I also did have that thought of like, oh, God, is this, is this another scam? <laughs> is this another thing? And, you know, because like it does, it still makes me so tense, you know, and I'm still very nervous about taking any kind of calls, you know, from any business or whatever. But yeah, it was literally like, you know, you're getting it back. So you you put the phone down from them. What did you do next? She didn't tell anyone about it until I got the confirmation email. Because it was a phone call, I was a bit like, oh, and then I got the, the email and it all, you know, all looked legit and everything. So I just thought like, hey, I'm I'm gonna wait until I actually get the money back and then it's then it is literally official. The Ombudsman's office didn't give Jenny any explanation as to why they decided in her favour. And neither did her bank, HSBC. Although it did send a short email confirming the £7,300 payment, saying, We are sorry that the level of service provided did not meet your expectations. You know, initially I was really pleased to just finally have that back and really pleased, you know, I felt vindicated, you know, this wasn't my fault. That's what it meant to me. It wasn't just the money. It's the idea that, you know, I'm not to blame for this happening mm. and and they were wrong to say that I was. But, like, it, so I was really pleased to get it back, but then also, like, I, I am still quite resentful of the fact that it you know took so long and like in the end it was all fine in the end obviously like I question like why didn't they just give it to me in the first place why did they have to make it so hard well the obvious place to turn to to get more information and perhaps some answers about Jenny's case was the financial ombudsman service itself so we invited the boss along to the FT studio lovely to be here my name's Pat Hurley and I'm a lead ombudsman at the Financial Ombudsman Service. So, Pat, day to day, what are you doing in, in your job? What does being the lead ombudsman for fraud actually involve? So, as unfortunately everyone will be aware, there's been a big uptick in fraud and scams across the country in recent years. Mm. Uh, at the Ombudsman Service, we've experienced that ourselves and we've had about a 60% uptick in fraud and scams cases. 60%? About 60% over the last three years. So, as you can imagine... A lot of our day-to-day activity is very much being spent not just looking at those cases, but trying to understand the kind of themes behind them and provide good feedback to the industry so that they can help to prevent fraud going forward. Now, the main reason Jenny was taken in by the fraudsters was because when she checked online whether the number she was being called from was genuine, it did indeed come up as the number for the fraud team at her bank. This is known as number spoofing. Pat is unable to comment on individual cases, so I asked him a more general question. How common is spoofing? Probably the three most prominent of the scam themes we see are the ones like Jenny's, which involve impersonation. We call them impersonation scams. 
They're ones where usually your bank, but it can be other organizations of authority, the scammers, as they did in, in, in this case, are able to use technology to mm. trick the, the victim into thinking that they are speaking to their bank because the caller ID shows that it's the same number often on your bank card or on, on, the, on the bank's website. When, of course, it, it's not at all. It's just technology that's spoofed that. So, yeah, we, they're one of the most prominent types of scammer that we see. And the others? Pat says the next two most common complaints are buying things online that turn out not to exist and investment scams, which can involve scarily realistic cloned websites. So watch out. As we've heard, Jenny was thrilled to get her money back, but unhappy about how long the process took. How does Pat respond to that? The time it takes for a fraud complaint to, to be resolved will depend on many factors, including the complexity of the fraud and amounts of money involved, things like that. Now, in Jenny's case, she was contacted pretty soon after she filed the report online with a, we've got this type message. Don't worry, it will probably take us a while to get back to you just because cases are so high, but it has been received. And then the next time she heard from you was a phone call from the case officer saying the case has been decided in your favour, an email confirming that, but very little detail. I mean, she was expecting to be interrogated uh, by you and for there to be like a big investigation. We're um, dealing with the same organisations day in, day out. And actually you do get some organisations that some of the banks will kind of battle individually on each case and different banks will take a kind of a more pragmatic view once it's with us. And, you know, for the benefit of its customer, might be prepared to settle some disputes with us that are kind of thematically similar. It just sort of depends on, on what's going on with that particular case and, and actually that, that, that bank too. Well, we found out in the last episode that roughly 75% of cases that get as far as the ombudsman's desk are decided in the victim's favour. As Jenny found out, that brings with it compensation under the voluntary code I mentioned earlier. So, what does Pat think about the very high proportion of successful cases? Well, he says there's a gap. A learning gap for the banks between um, what's kind of expected of them through the code and how it's kind of playing out in practice. We are seeing signs, actually, I would say, of, of some improvement from, from banks. But typically, you know, there have been probably too many examples, I think, where perhaps the bar for what reasonable behaviour is isn't being placed in quite the right place. By the, by the bank um, in all the circumstances and too much has been expected of a consumer who's you know, frankly in the headlights of a, of a scam. When I spoke to Jenny about how she felt when she got a call from one of your case officers saying, we're giving you your money back, £7,000 will shortly be put in your account, her very, very initial reaction was, obviously happiness that she was going to get the money back. But this was immediately overshadowed by a feeling of rising fear from the pit of her stomach that actually she wasn't talking to the ombudsman, she could be talking to another fraudster. And that that really stayed with me after we'd finished the recording, just this sense that she can't trust anyone anymore. Is this common to, to other people who, who make complaints with you? Well, I mean, the financial numbers are, are scary in themselves, but they're they're more tangible. You know, we as an organisation, we've returned over £150 million to, to fraud victims over the last three or, three or so years. And that's easier to quantify. What's less easy to quantify 
is what you're describing there. And, you know, people feel violated and the scars of, of, of fraud, unfortunately, do run deep. These are not just complaints. These are victims of crime. So, unfortunately, yes, people's trust can be damaged by, by these events. When Pat looks at cases, crucially, he's applying the test of what is reasonable for a customer to have believed and what isn't reasonable. So does he have any useful pointers for us if we think we're on the receiving end of what sounds like a genuine call? So it's important for all of us to be thinking very carefully about every text message we receive, every email we receive, every phone call we receive and and questioning, is this definitely who I think it is? Because unfortunately, we are in that place now, I think. And the 25% of cases where you do decide in the bank's favour, are there any points in common of those that listeners should really, really be aware of where people haven't gone far enough to ensure that they're really talking to their bank? This is an important point, actually. So investment scams would be a good example, perhaps, of one where people have been unsuccessful with us. And they're kind of too good to be true. I mean, not just investment scams, but generally speaking, the too good to be true adage is worth remembering here. The give us £500 and you'll get 10000 back. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Or um, here's a designer handbag that's normally £1,000 and it's yours for only 80 They're the kinds of examples that we'd be thinking about. Well, OK, you know, was this reasonable? Um, should somebody have really thought that, that that is likely to be? Is it going to be too good to be true? Anything else that are common to those cases? I mean, not reading the security messages that the banks send out on apps. So yes, not taking note of improved warnings. And we have seen an improvement in the, in the bank's warnings. A number of the banks now, for example, do things like in the warning, they'll, they will have the customer's name in there. That'd be perhaps more likely to draw it to your attention and not kind of dismiss it as a, a pop-up. Pat is keen to offer this reassurance to people like Jenny who feel a sense of shame about falling for a scam. There is no typical fraud victim. Yeah, fraud, it, it's, it's indiscriminate. And what's important to remember is that the scammers are adept at creating an environment where we will make decisions that are in the fog of emotion and in the cold light of day, people... as. You know, as, as you're describing, people question themselves how they, they fell for it. But nobody should feel silly when they've been a victim of crime. Fraud can originate from texts, phone calls, emails and social media messaging apps. But when it comes to compensating victims, the buck stops with our banks. Katie Warabeck is the Managing Director of Economic Crime at UK Finance, the banking industry's trade body. Its latest statistics show there has been a 39% annual increase in the type of fraud that Jenny experienced. It's known as authorised fraud, as customers are tricked into authorising bank transfers to criminals who could be posing as their bank, the police or other official bodies. In 2021, victims were scammed out of £583 million, and less than half of this money was ever refunded to consumers. I asked Katie, are banks doing enough to protect victims from this rising tide of fraud? The banks do have a lot of things in place. They're spending a lot of time and resource to try and tackle this type of fraud. 
they provide warnings. We have the Take 5 campaign, which is all about um, trying to help people become aware of the types of scams that we're seeing. Regardless of the prevention measures, more and more people like Jenny are falling victim to impersonation scams. What we're finding is that most of these scams are initiated before they even reach the bank. They're initiated through social engineering uh, and gleaning information from innocent victims up front. Uh, And the the reason that these cases are dealt with on a case-by-case basis is that the bank needs to try and understand what it is that's happened leading up to this, this, this scam happening. It's about looking at each of the roles of the sending bank, the receiving bank and the customer themselves to see whether they've done what, what could be expected of them to do under this code. But even, even so, if they were doing what was expected of them, then should we have such a high rate, three quarters of cases where consumers have been told you can't be refunded, being overturned by the ombudsman and people like Jenny being told, actually, you can have your money back months further down the line? Well, I think uh, in terms of the the types of uh, cases that end up at the financial ombudsman, it's a fairly small proportion of all the cases that are going through the system at any given time. That just could be because people don't know that they can use the ombudsman service and they think that the door is closed on their complaint forever. Uh, I don't think that's true because the banks uh, do have an absolute duty and do advise that if any complaint is not, uh, they don't feel is upheld, that the customer has a right to reserve it to the financial ombudsman. That's very clear. Now, as you say, the buck stops with the banks when it comes to compensating the victims of fraud. But the frauds themselves usually start on online platforms, search engines, social media companies. And UK Finance has been saying for many years now, more cooperation is needed. We've got the online safety bill coming slowly down the tracks. What kind of things do you need legislation to make the online payment companies, the social media sites do what you need them to do? Well, the online safety bill is welcomed, I think. But actually, you know, that, that as you've mentioned, is a little way down the line. And really what I would like to see is more a collaboration now. Mm. Now, one area where I've written in the FT, I think the social media companies should be doing much more, is taking down fake accounts and taking action when people report that a scam has happened. I mean, in the past week, I kid you not, the producer of Money Clinic podcast nearly fell victim to a scam that originated online. She saw a flat advertised for rent on social media. The advert looked genuine. It had a logo from a well-known company. And then she was sent a request to transfer the money direct from her bank account. And at which point she smelled a rat and she knew it was a scam. Now, she works in finance. She knows how horribly people get ripped off by these kinds of cons. So she reported this to both the social media platform and the company whose logo had been used in this fraudulent request for money, neither of them have done anything about it. One of them has said they cannot do anything. This is just beyond their control. The advert is still up there. Other people who are out there right now looking for a flat could be lured by the same criminals 
into parting with hundreds and hundreds of pounds in um, property deposits. Yeah, so I mean, uh, without knowing the facts of the case, I, I don't really accept that you can't take down adverts. This is what must change. I would hope, and I, you know, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't something that could be done more pragmatically and quickly in order to tackle this type of crime. Because you know, we we can't wait for legislation, frankly, to um, to solve the problems for us. This is, as we've said, an epidemic of fraud, and it's only going to be resolved by all of everybody pulling their weight, not just the people who are um, bearing the brunt of paying out um, those victims, which is which is the banks. So yes, come on, online platforms, um, please do help with this fight against fraud. It's all our mutual customers that are at risk. Well, finally, Casey, what would your advice be to consumers who listen to Money Clinic podcast? and might be thinking to themselves, "Mm, I wouldn't be foolish enough to fall for a fraud. What would you like to tell them? Everyone should be aware. Don't think that you're immune to them because you aren't. So if anybody calls you, contacts you out of the blue, whether it's uh, by phone or by email or whatever, just use our take five messages, stop, challenge, protect. Stop and think before you do anything because they're trying to make you do something quickly. Um, Challenge them. Don't be afraid to challenge uh, people if they're a legitimate company. Uh, They won't mind you putting the phone down or um, taking time to respond and then protect. So if you are, um, if you feel that you have um, fallen victim, please do report it to your bank straight away because that will mean it will give us the most opportunity to try and stop the funds if they are taken out of your account. That's it for Money Clinic this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. And if you would like to chat with me on a future episode of the show, then get in touch. You can email me, our address is money at ft.com, or DM me on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced by Philippa Goodrich. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner, and the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here soon. Goodbye.